นโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังนมังสังขังนมัสสะไอ้ทูต perhaps this evening it could be useful if we considered together the approach that we take when we're confronted with difficulties as people following the Buddha's teachings will appreciate that there's the encouragement to cultivate our abilities and we're not fixed things and and I'm sure we all would appreciate that the way we pick up an issue or the way we uh, try to deal with difficulties has an effect on the outcome. So how do we choose to face the challenges of life? We all feel challenged, whether it's something as everyday as a perhaps a difficult conversation that we are anticipating having with somebody, and how do we approach that? Or maybe it's a medical concern. How do we approach that? Do we automatically? Make it into a problem. And that's, I think, worth considering. It's very easy to do, and, and things are not going how I like them to go. And it can very easily create a problem. And is that an obligation? Is that helpful? Thing, considering this this kind of predicament that we find ourselves in, and I readily recollect that encounter I had with my teacher Ajahn Chah many years ago in Thailand, and some of you will have heard me talk about it before because it was a a very valuable teaching for me. When I had undergone some surgery on my knees, and the medical folk in the hospital. Very generously, diligently performing the surgery, reassured me that it was all going to heal up and things would be good, and not such a long period of time. And as it happened, it didn't go as planned. And weeks and months had gone by, and my ability to sit on the floor or even bow, for that matter, was really significantly. Impaired, and I wasn't pleased about that. I was, I felt like I couldn't really do the monk thing, and it was embarrassing and disappointing and frustrating. And as it happened on this occasion, I was still down in Bangkok, and Ajahn Chah was visiting, and I went to see him, and and uh, I tried to pay my respects, and I couldn't sit on the floor properly, and started going on about, oh l u m p o i it shouldn't be this way. The doctor said this, the doctor said that, and 
and he looked at me with a quizzical expression on his face and, and well, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. Which really pulled me up sharp. I, yeah. That was the wisdom perspective. I was creating a problem by saying it shouldn't be this way. Now, he wasn't saying that you know, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way, as if it was some sort of new age idea that the universe was sending me a message to teach me a lesson or some such thing. He was saying, there are causes for it be this way, and so it is this way, and so the wise thing to do is to receive it, look into it, and accord with it skillfully, and, which I wasn't doing. I was definitely making a problem out of it. And, and it is, as I was saying, the easiest thing to do. And if everybody around us is making problems out of life's challenges, then that means we run the risk of being pulled into that kind of reactive relationship with life. Not a wise, not necessarily skillful, and, and almost certainly not helpful. So from the Buddhist perspective, that kind of suffering, that kind of struggle, having to always deal with problems, uh, is not an obligation. And, and not only did the Buddha teach that it was not an obligation, but he also demonstrated in his life, in, in his example. And there's a very moving account in the scriptures of what happened for the Buddha when he received word that his closest disciples, the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Moggallana, had both passed away. And at this time he commented, he said, it's as if the sun and the moon have gone out of the sky. Mm. Which is definitely a very vivid expression of the perception of loss. But he also went on to say that, but there's no suffering. For the Tathagata, for the awakened one, there's no suffering. So there can be Perception, experience of pain, of loss, of disappointment, frustration, for sure, including for the Buddha and all the realized teachers. But there doesn't have to be suffering, that's the teaching. There doesn't have to be a problem. So the encouragement is for us to develop our faculties, our inner faculties, so as to be so present, so accurate at the time when we meet a challenge, that we encounter difficulties, that we're ready for it, we're there for it. We don't just default to a habitual condition reaction and create a problem. Because problem creating can become addictive. It can be actually very self-affirming. If I've got a problem, then there's this strong sense of me who has to solve it. And in a curious way, the risk is that we can become addicted to having problems just to compound the sense of self, which of course all of us are at least ostensibly working to untangle that particular knot. So our addiction to problem-making is something the Buddha really encouraged us by his teaching and by his example 
to get interested in, to get curious, yeah. to get curious. What's actually going on here? What's the actuality of these difficulties that we encounter? Now, if we don't train our faculties, then, well, we know the consequences and we react. It's very easy to just have a conditioned reaction to things that we feel challenged by. A very good friend and long-term supporter of the monastery was recently explaining to me the lessons he's been learning from managing his Twitter account. He was saying how there's this incredible temptation to just shoot back with some smart comment when somebody sends a tweet that you don't like, or particularly if they're challenging a tweet that you put out, you can just quip back with some sort of a reactive response, not aware of the power of speech, not alert to, not registering. There are consequences to this. This is... If we're not careful, this is contributing to the chaos. We don't stop to register that we are, in fact, perpetuating this sense of there being a problem. So the encouragement is to develop our faculties so that we're there at the time. The Buddha taught directly, he said, It's through not seeing two things that you stay stuck with life struggle. Not seeing what two things? Not seeing suffering and not seeing the cause of suffering. Two things. I mean, it's not a huge amount. It's it's not even four things or eight things or 12 things or 84,000 things. It's just two things. Not seeing dukkha, not seeing dukkha samutaya, not seeing suffering and not seeing the cause. So the Buddha wanted us to get interested. I'm emphasizing this point about getting interested because, again, our our habit is to turn away. The more affluence we have, the more opportunities we have to ignore. I like to think of ignorance as not as a as as a thing so much, but as a as like a verb. It's something we do. Ignoring reality ignoring what's actually happening. So in many ways the Buddha encouraged us to get interested in actuality, what's really going on here in front of us. The Buddha also taught, he said, I teach two things. I teach just these two things. I teach the reality of dukkha, the reality of disappointment, frustration, however you want to translate that word. I teach the reality of dukkha and the reality of the liberation, freedom, cessation of dukkha. Just these two things. So in a world that is definitely full of dukkha and frustration, disappointment, confusion and and plenty of opportunities to contemplate this, surely it's a a useful thing to prepare ourselves in advance, not to wait until we feel overwhelmed. That, that is the consequence of not having prepared ourselves in advance. That life throws us a challenge and instead of getting interested in what's actually going on here, am I able to receive the actuality, the reality of this with interest, with a, a willingness to learn from it? and look into the causes.
And one of the things on an external level and level of worldly activity that we hear a lot about is the, the suffering that arises stems from the availability and use of social media. Increased abuse that takes place online, bullying, trolling, selling of illegal drugs and arms and you can't help but be aware of it. So, so when we register this issue, how do we receive it? How do we approach this? Do we label it as a problem? Does that help if we label it as a problem? Personally, I, for a long time now, I've avoided even using the word problem because I, I find just the word itself tends to solidify something that is in fact a process. It's a pattern of activity that's taking place. Yeah. Online abuse is not a thing, not a solid thing, it's a dynamic, it's an activity. And, and surely the, the challenge is how to see accurately this activity and be able to accord with it. So as we're in the best position to address it and deal with it. But if we haven't prepared ourselves in advance, once again, I say it's, it's very likely that we will label it as a problem. And certainly, here's a lot of the problem with the internet, the problem with social media, the problem with technology. Technology is not a problem. The social media is not a problem. Certainly, it presents us with difficulties and challenges. However, if we bring our practice to bear in this area, then exercising judgment-free, just-knowing awareness, maybe we start to see things from a different perspective, and that's what's called for, a perspective shift, so that we can see it with some space around it. If we label it as a problem, then there's a very real risk that we'll start looking for somebody to take responsibility for it and blaming somebody or just wringing our hands and saying it's all too much and then go and have another pizza. So the commitment we have in our cultivation of the inner work of developing these qualities and whole body mind judgment-free, just-knowing awareness, if we can receive this predicament, this issue, this challenge of online abuse and start to look into why has it become such an issue? It's been around for a long time. and Maybe we start to see how the way humanity in general has used technology is just for having fun. Have we really stopped to look at the consequences of this set of tools that we have been presented with. I mean, it's so lovely when you just like want to look up a bit of information. And just, uh, just a few days ago, I was, I, I was contemplating in my cootie sitting there in my chair, these two words, fortitude and forbearance. You know, we don't hear these words very often, but somehow they came into my mind and and think, well, what, how do they connect? Why are those two words coming up in my mind together? And do I really understand fortitude and forbearance? And I just reach out. Don't even have to get out of my chair. Just reach out, pick up my phone, put it into the search box there. Fortitude and forbearance. And 
pop, there it comes. And there's this beautiful explanation. And fortitude is this mental, emotional skill and uh, strength, form of strength. And, and then forbearance is explained as a, as a particular activity whereby we can endure that which is difficult to deal with. And, and all that's really helpful. Just, oh, I love this technology. I do. That ability to get such quick access to information and to be able to ring my friend, the abbot of the monastery in Wat Nana Chart in Thailand, or you know, Ajahn Jayanto from from Massachusetts rang me a couple of days ago, and, and Ajahn Tiradamo from Sydney, and this is just, I love this technology. Well, we can love it, and it can be used for all sorts of enjoyable things, but... If we don't stop and consider, well, those with not such wholesome intentions are also using it. And that's been the case from the very beginning. And why didn't we stop and pay attention to that? And why do our preferences tend to take us in the direction of, how can I use this to get more of what I want quicker? And booking holidays online and shopping online and access to information. It's all so lovely, but... There's another side to it. and So if we do develop our spiritual faculties and we're able to receive this predicament into a judgment-free, just-knowing quality of awareness, there's a better chance we'll start to learn that wisdom gives the ability to see both sides. We tend to just see one side, what suits me. But if we develop in a balanced way, not just in terms of what I like and what I want, sometimes we have to inhibit just getting what I want. And so we see the benefit of training. Well, I'm going to learn to not pick up my phone whenever I want an answer. One day a week I'm going to just leave the phone in the cupboard, turn it off. Can I do that? And the way we do that Instead of indulging in every impulse we have to use our gadgets, can we skillfully relate to them so we're not being used by them, not being driven by them? Can we do that? And in the process, maybe we find that our initial relationship to inhibiting our reaction is just to flip to the other side and repress. So instead of indulging in gratifying our desires to get information or book holidays or go shopping on eBay or whatever it might, as we might be doing and we just deny it and shut it in the cupboard and pretend it's not there and try and forget about it and grit our teeth until the 24 hours is over and we can pull it out and start using it again. But again, if we're considering it, if we're looking at it, we're training our relationship, developing, cultivating our relationship so that it's a skillful relationship with technology. And we can't just theorize about this, we need to experiment. Similar investigation can happen in the way we might relate or approach the feelings of insecurity that arise when we notice old familiar structures failing or collapsing not working as they used to and usually even something that we love or appreciate 
or find convenient or feel familiar with fails us, we very readily say it shouldn't be this way. But is that a wise response or is that just an uninspected reaction? It's worth looking into. If we're not careful, we can just habitually create a problem. Something as evident as the political structures that have been familiar for a long period of time. If they appear to be failing us, do we get interested in how we feel about that? Or the NHS, or the BBC, or pillars of Britishness start to change significantly? Are we able to accommodate and accord with that change, or do we turn it into a problem? Well, it would be wise to acknowledge that if we turn into a problem, we are responsible for that. It's nobody else's responsibility. We are the authors, we are the perpetrators of these problems. And it might give us a, a kind of cheap hit to think I've got a problem that I have to sort out or I can't handle. But maybe if we look more carefully and more deeply and more subtly into that dynamic, we start to see that I-creating, I-generating approach to challenges is not productive. It's just not productive. Why is it that at a time of such affluence in the world, such freedom from the threat of war and famine and pestilence, that we find so many people feeling excruciatingly frustrated? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe the answer lies in this lack of preparedness in these Technology has amplified everything, potentized everything. Everything's moving faster with greater intensity. And something like, as I was saying, political structures that were established to serve society at a different time, evidently not fit to deal with the complexity and intensity of, of the issues that we have to deal with now. That doesn't mean to say anything's wrong. It doesn't, we don't have to say it shouldn't be this way. Actually, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. Absolutely, perfectly reasonable causes for the systems to be collapsing. And with the collapse and change of any system, any structure, of course, there's inertia. That's basic physics that we all learned at school a few years ago. And so change is inevitable. Any structure is subject to the law of change. It's just that we tend to get used to certain things and depend on them when in fact that perhaps wasn't the wisest relationship to reality. And hence again the Buddha's encouragement to cultivate our faculties so as to be prepared to accord with reality, accord with what's happening here and now. And then so, uh, whole body, mind, judgment-free, just knowing, awareness. If we cultivate that and then recognize 
how we feel, the insecurity, the uncertainty that arises when we're faced with dramatic change and crumbling of old familiar structures, we don't automatically default to saying it's wrong. Or we don't automatically default to blaming somebody or criticizing somebody. We can get interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why would we just say it shouldn't be this way? Mm-hmm. Why would we say that the structures that were invented for a society hundreds of years ago can deal with a society that has changed so much. Just in the last 50 years, society and the ways of relating and the structures that we depend on has changed enormously. Trying to apply old principles to deal with new complexities is like applying the principles that we learn in studying Newtonian physics to explain or investigate dark matter. That's not, that wouldn't be a suitable approach. Mm-hmm. Newtonian physics had its time. Not that I understand dark matter at all, but it's of a different time and, and calls for a different set of tools. And, and it is complex and it is difficult. You know, something as mundane, for instance, as... You know, I often think about the example of you know, copyright law. The analogue era of music and movies, that, that ended a long time ago, and yet still very, very smart lawyers uh, are struggling to come up with copyright law that meets the challenges of and the complexities of the digital era. It's difficult. There's inertia. There's resistance. However, to not really see where, when and how we get pulled into that resistance, we become the inertia. If we don't see that, well, then we're part of the problem. We're contributing to the chaos. We're compulsively creating problems. If we're honest, I think we can say 100% of the struggles that we have to deal with come down to resisting reality, resisting the reality of change. We just don't like it, that's all. And, And if we are able to recognize that, own up to that, well then we can feel encouraged, well there is something we can do about that, we can, we can become more agile. Mm-hmm. All structures change, you know, political, educational, medical, legal, psychological, emotional. Any compounded phenomena, any conditioned structure is in a state of change. So the smart thing to do is to develop our faculties, our watchfulness, our ability to restrain our reactions, like our friend using his relationship with Twitter to develop restraint, Mm -hmm. so as to be able to meet the uncertainty, not just react to the uncertainty. It's perfectly predictable that we will want to react to the uncertainty and revert to the old form of certainty and 
then it's perfectly predictable and understandable. However, sometimes it's just not possible. So many things on so many levels are changing at such a rate that we can't afford that indulgence anymore. But we do have this opportunity to develop our faculties to, for instance, know that we don't know, to train ourselves to be able to stand in that place of productive intensity that acknowledges that we don't know, that place of okay uncertainty. We're not pretending that we feel certain. At least that's the principle, that's the, that's the direction we can train ourselves in. Uncertainty is like this. It's really uncertain. Whole body-mind, judgment-free, just-knowing awareness, receiving uncertainty, knowing that we don't know. How does that compare with a synthetic form of certainty, which is actually a characteristic of fundamentalism? Fundamentalists object to change and insist that things stay how they've been forever. They resist, chronically, resist change. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can understand that, we can see that, we can recognise that. It's quite possible that as the years go by and the future generations of human beings will grow up and find that they're able to develop their faculties in ways that means they they can meet this rapid rate of change. For our generation, this rapid rate of change is very difficult, very challenging, intensely disturbing. But, for instance, I was reflecting recently how young people growing up now, for them, mindfulness is just another word. It's not a, a fancy, newfangled idea. Mindfulness is just... That's just an aspect of our education. Like you study maths, you study mindfulness. It's just something that you do. And, and it won't be long, I expect, before, you know, when you go for a job interview, you, you don't just go for an IQ test, you go for an EQ test. There's, there's a, a really important place for a, a well-developed level of emotional intelligence. And for a lot of people, it really is important that they've got a, an ability to relate harmoniously with their colleagues and, and relate creatively to facing difficulties. Maybe a time will come when there'll be a measure for integrity quotient because a well-developed sense of integrity brings with it a very organic quality of self-confidence and calm and potential clarity and so instead of defining the rate of change and the difficulties that we many of us feel confronted with as a problem and something has gone wrong and it shouldn't be this way you say well this is change and that's inertia one of the symptoms of a fundamentalist relationship to life is to resist change and to demand that things be as they've always been and fixed positions. So to 
learn the skills of being able to accord with change, to train our faculties to, instead of making the feeling of uncertainty into an enemy, into a problem, into a failure, so uncertainty is difficult and get interested in it. To train our faculties to inhibit the perception, the belief, the assumption that problems are inevitable. Challenges are inevitable, that's true, but I think to assume that problems are inevitable and life has to be a struggle, I think, well, that's certainly to deny the wisdom of the Buddha. And we have this invitation to reconsider these assumptions, not be pulled into what those around us might be saying or how they might be reacting, and remember that we have this potential to develop our faculties to not be intimidated by change not be intimidated by uncertainty and if we are intimidated then to find the skills to accord with that like I was mentioning before restraint believing in restraint is not enough believing in the principle of restraint it's like the handshake it's the introduction that's not the practice there We can believe in the principle of restraint and the principle of forbearance and the principle of patience. Believing in those things, is that's helpful, but then we need to invest in them and cultivate them. I I can remember an experience when I was back in New Zealand on a family visit and walking along the beach one day and I was being approached by a group of people and one of them stepped out as I remember it, a kind of slightly confrontational manner and and challenged me, at least that's how it felt, with this like, you know, what are you and what do you guys believe? And I crept back and said, well, I'm a Buddhist and we believe in not making a problem out of anything. It was a bit of a smart aleck comment, really, but I do really think that's a good way of summarising what Buddhists believe. We don't have to make a problem out of things. However, as I was saying, just believing that we don't have to make a problem out of things is, is, is not enough. It's like believing in compassion is wonderful, but then <laughs> being completely devoid of empathy and not paying attention to the people that we work with or live with you know, is not much compassion going to manifest and so believing in compassion is not enough believing in the fact that it's not an obligation to create problems out of life's difficulties or life's challenges is not enough we need to receive it we need to develop the ability to receive these challenges a few days ago I went down to the lovely bamboo grove kuti we have next to Mangala house and, and with the intention of gathering my thoughts and uh, around this theme so as to be able to give this talk tonight and the idea of that in reality there are no problems and and I, I, as soon as I walked into the kuti I, I noticed uh, oh, the heating's not working uh, 
oh that's disappointing and and thought, oh well so sat down in the chair and then got out the laptop that's in the cupboard down there well I'll you know work on the laptop and then I found out that the office manager had put a password on the laptop that I, I didn't know the password and and well that's disappointing and well actually maybe it's not the office manager's responsibility maybe he told me and it's it's my memory that's fading and well that's disappointing and oh well never mind I'll, I'll ring the monastery office and get some help and so well at least my phone was working so I rang the office and it went straight to the answer phone and well that's disappointing because it should actually have been switched off quite a while ago and it was just really basically life it's just one disappointment after another However, it was um, helpful to have this theme to contemplate. In reality, there are no problems. because The tendency is always there in every moment. The tendency to default to limiting awareness, obstructing awareness, and being caught in conditioned reactions is always there. And if we don't really own up to that then the chances are we'll just keep getting pulled into those vortices, those habits and suffering the consequences but once again we're very fortunate, we can be very thankful that we have the teachings and the example of the Buddha and the the great teachers to remind us that this is not an obligation there is something that we can do about it and thank you very much this evening for your attention Mm-hmm.